0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, some of our favorite interviews about Colorado history. And we begin with the new state historian. Patty Limerick of CU Boulder was named in January. And we had a question for her. What's the most misunderstood or overlooked aspect of Colorado history? Her response? The continued significance of American Indians. We spoke just after she was named to the post. Patty, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So you think American Indians aren't talked about enough in Colorado history, particularly the Southern Utes. You say they've historically been very savvy when it comes to thinking long-term about natural resources in particular. Explain that.
1: Well, the Southern Ute people have had a... really striking approach to having this great resource of natural gas and, and oil on their reservation. And so they built a company, Red Willow, and that company has been very prosperous and has has uh, development in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's really quite an extraordinary thing. They invest, they save and invest uh, the revenue in many cases. They don't just squander it as some other groups in American society have been known to get great windfalls and to squander it but they're really building for a for a permanent lasting fund uh so the southern ute people are certainly people to learn from and be inspired by and to note and to uh recognize as really important players in our in our state and in our nation, for that matter.
0: Very Uh, current players in our state and our nation. And a myth that you believe persists about American Indians is that they are vanishing. You actually (laughs) wrote a piece in the Denver Post about this. Um, In that article, you said that uh, they have been resilient and are very much a part of Mm -hmm. contemporary and, frankly, urban communities. Where do you think the idea of the vanishing American Indian came from?
1: Late 19th century, uh, there was indeed a drop-off in the... uh, In the population, the disease impacts had been devastating, the uh, poverty and, and confinement on reservations and changed economies or absent economies. I mean, there were all kinds of troubles. So that could be interpreted, if you weren't thinking as carefully and thoughtfully as you might, as, oh, they're disappearing. Uh, the population is shrinking uh, people are are getting are intermarrying Indian people are intermarrying with whites maybe they won 't really be Indians anymore if they have mixed ancestry. All kinds of odd ideas like this notion that somehow or other intermarriage will turn them into somebody who, who won 't be in any way connected to their tribal traditions anyway. A bunch of odd ideas come into play well i 've had odd ideas there 's nothing wrong with that, but when you get too fond of your odd idea and you think it is. Something to believe in spite of evidence that's where it gets it gets dangerous and you can see why for white Americans this this was a a gene of guilt to think well it's really nothing that we've done they're just a they're just a declining disappearing people there was psychological benefit in taking this mistaken notion, so you can figure out how it happened um, and because you can figure it out this is the basic faith of the historian if you can figure out how that mistaken set of ideas came into play, you can declare your independence of those. You can think through a habit of mind. you can look at its origins historically, and then you can say, let's change that habit of mine. You're not trapped by the past.
0: You even point to the photographer Edward Curtis, who worked in the early 20th century, early 20th century, as a potential culprit in this uh, perception of the vanishing Indian, because he did yeah. these portraits of American Indians that uh, made them appear to be frozen in time.
1: And that this image still persists. Yes. And Curtis uh, was one complicated human being. And so to pillory him or blame him is not um, fitting because, in fact, he really did have some sense of mission to preserve the – well, to keep attention on these people and not let them vanish. From at least from memory, whatever happened. So uh, Curtis, I wouldn't care to take a sharp stick and poke at him. Okay, uh, and I especially wouldn't because one of his successors, I guess, is a Navajo photographer, Will Wilson, who has taken up the techniques of the of a century ago and takes photographs of contemporary Indian people in that Curtis-like method, and also takes photographs of non-Indian people. So I have myself a photograph where I look like a vanishing. Relic. I mean, I'm in a, the same kind of sepia tone thing. Will Wilson does this great, great work of, of just saying in, in a gentle, probably even good-natured, um, humorous, ironic way, we're still here. We're, we're still, still here. here. And we're taking photographs, and we're taking photographs of white people, and we're making them look like they're vanishing, which is very cool.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And Patty Limerick, who heads the Center of the American West at the University of Colorado Boulder, has another title to add to a long list of titles, and that is State Historian. And in light of that new position, we're asking her about a misconception of Colorado history. And she has chosen the fact that American Indians... Uh, are still very much a part of contemporary history, despite the myth that some hold of the vanishing Indian. This is something she has written about extensively. And let's talk about the processes that have brought American Indians into cities. Yes, because there's, yeah. there's an urbanization mm-hmm. here that's an important part of this story. Mm-hmm. What are the drivers?
1: Well, there's uh, various ones. Some of them are just opportunity seeking, which all human populations have some version of that. And so for many Indian people, it has been a matter of of choice of of having a profession, having an occupation, and pursuing it into a city, and there's also some quite unhappy stories of forced relocation of a policy of the federal government of really not uh, entire not consenting. We're going to take you off the reservations, and we're going to resettle you in cities, and you are going to cease to be people of tribal connection and tribal identity. So that that policy in the mid 20th century that. Did a lot um, to increase the, the urban population, but that if you accent that too much, you squish the notion of Indian people making choices on their own, which is a big part of the story of urbanization. So, and it's also it gets really to that core of. The recognition that you can have a thoroughly contemporary identity, you can be a reporter, you can be a lawyer, you can be a, a professor, a teacher, you can be all kinds of an insurance agent, you can do all sorts of stuff and still be quite Indian. You can still have very strong tribal connections, so there are uh, now there's a, a greater percentage of the Indian population are urban Indian people then, and yet, then
0: live on reservations
1: yes uh-huh, uh-huh yeah, and yet to say. Well, that's, uh, those are completely different populations. That's not accurate because urban people keep ties, just as I have a strange tie to my hometown. I mean, I'm not really going to be as sentimental about that as I might be. But, uh, but people, it's perfectly possible to live someplace and still have a very strong tie to a homeland there.
0: When we asked you to choose uh, a misperception, a misconception of history – and, and you chose this, this perception mm-hmm. of American Indians in Colorado. I gather that's because you've had lots of interactions in which people have just been uh, ill-informed. Um, at, yes. What,
1: what do those interactions sound you know, like? What do you... They sound like uh, situations where I actually have had people, non-Indian people say to me, oh, are there still Indians? I've had that happen at various uh, social encounters, cocktail parties and so on. Or oh, are there still Indians? And then that's often got the follow-up question, are they real Indians? Oh, dear me. Oh, dear me. Are you a real person? You're seeming like an odd person. I mean, that kind of conversation, you don't – It's a, there's a moment of paralysis where you think, oh, where shall we start with this? And in Colorado, that's not a problem. Where should we start with – well, first of all, don't scold them. Don't say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard you, say, a person say. Don't do that because that's not an educational stance. That that does not work with freshmen. If you say to freshmen, well, you don't know anything, do you? That doesn't work with freshmen. So,
0: And you're saying that this uh... – also does not work with adults uh, and if you that were you were as a, if, state historian are not going to take that kind no, of
1: no no because that is a, a direct fast route to failure if you take that so yeah. but what you can do is you can say oh it's so interesting that you would say that because just a, a month or two ago I was at the the anniversary 40th anniversary banquet for the Native American Rights Fund which is in Boulder Colorado and is a it's two blocks from where my office is Native American Rights Fund is the principal Litigating force on behalf of Indian rights, everything, water rights, religious rights, all kinds of rights. And it's – I walk by there. If I want to walk downtown, I walk by the central place of Indian activism in the courts. So uh, the Cobell case, the famous case against the Department of the Interior for mishandling royalties of um, Indian resources. I mean it's it – that's is here. emanating from Colorado. It's from Colorado. Yeah. So – and it's so present. It's, it's so not – well, we'll have to dig around and see if we can find – something that shows us that Indian people are still important, it's there. You you go there, you see the website, you walk by the place, it's it's there.
0: And the case law is there to prove it as well. You are also interested, uh, as the new state historian, in shedding light on uh, Colorado's American Indians who served in the military in particular. We are at the 50th anniversary, essentially, of the Mm -hmm. Vietnam War. I imagine Mm -hmm. that that has... Partly to do with this,
1: yes. I uh, it's a story that I won't bog us down in. But I got involved with the Vietnam War commemoration effort. Uh, I have written on the subject of Indian people as participants in the United States military because that is bewildering. Some people who are at a distance can just get snarled up in confusion. How could an Indian person serve in a United States military when the United States military was historically used against Indian people? Hmm. And as one um, remarkable Indian man said to me, "Well, it's our country. I mean, it was our country before it was before you guys were here. So we'll fight for our country because it's it's a deeper tie that." Uh, and so I am really uh, trying to help as much as I can in the whole project of getting Vietnam veterans attended to and having chances to tell their stories if they choose to tell those stories. And I want to make sure, and, I, and the Vietnam War commemoration people are totally behind this, of making sure that Indian people are full participants in that. What I envision, and this is just me dreaming, I don't know if it's going to happen, I envision really doing some serious work on exhibits, looking at war veterans in Colorado over 150 years, including Indian people, over 200 years, really, including Indian people who fought against whites because they are veterans, too.
0: Thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations on the new position.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Patty Limerick was named state historian earlier this year. At CPRnews.org, you can hear about another title she holds, a strange one, the official university fool at CU Boulder. Limerick also directs the center of the American West. Our Colorado History Special continues with a woman who saved the city of Denver from a major outbreak. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There are really well-known names who have shaped Colorado history, like Pike, Long, and Route. But we learned about some lesser well-known figures who made big contributions when we read the book Colorado Vanguards, Historic Trailblazers and Their Local Legacies. Author Phyllis Perry spoke to my colleague Nathan Heffel in April. Phyllis, this is your eighth book about Colorado. You've written two on Rocky
2: Mountain National Park, on historical Colorado women, and even one on the jerks in Colorado history. Uh, You say you've been wanting to write this book for a while, but other books got in your way. How,
3: How so? Well, after writing the first book about Rocky Mountain National Park, I really wanted to write this book, which at that time I called Famous Faces and Places in Colorado. But um, got a telephone call saying that there was need for another Rocky Mountain Park book, which would be more pictorial with lots and lots of photographs in it. So I put Famous Places and Faces away for a bit and worked on that. Then I did write the book. But to my surprise, when the editor received the manuscript, they said that bad guys were what was selling Not good guys.
2: (laughs) That was so bad guys.
3: Okay. (laughs) And so she said, would you like to do the same kind of book, but write about the jerks in Colorado history? She said, you know, every one of those good guys you wrote about faced a bad guy. So it's just a matter of looking at it in a different way. (laughs) So I spent the next year writing jerks in Colorado history, and she was right. They were uh, an interesting group of people to look at, and even the jerkiest of them had a lot of good points. But finally, I got back to these famous people in the state in all kinds of different fields of endeavor who really made a a significant difference not only in the state, but in many cases uh, throughout the world.
2: Phyllis, you write about historical figures such as Zebulon Pike, Stephen Long, and John Long Rout in this book, but I found sections on the lesser known figures very fascinating. Uh, let's start with the Bent brothers, Charles and William. They built Bent's Fort in 1833, 43 years before Colorado became a state. It was located at a bend in the Arkansas River between what is now La Junta and Los Animas, southeast of Pueblo.
3: What drew you to these two men? Charles and William Bent, brothers, were significant each in their own way. Both of them were interested in the beginning in the Missouri Fur Company, but it didn't take long for Charles to realize that instead of being a trapper, he was really the trader. And he began establishing quite a lucrative business of moving those furs from Santa Fe to St. Louis. When his brother, who was 10 years younger, William Bent, uh, was old enough, he also went out to be a trapper and trader. And on one of those very first expeditions, he had a run-in with some Native Americans. One fellow was being chased by another group and asked Bent to hide him because he was about to be killed. Bent took him in, told the little group that was chasing him that he'd gone off that away, way and uh, started developing a friendship which really grew strong with both the Cheyenne and Southern Arapaho. And it occurred to Bent that a fort in that area, in which not only trappers and traders like him, but also Native Americans could bring their furs. So we're talking about a big fort, and if you go to see it today, you can still see the little shops that ring the courtyard where you could trade furs for kitchen utensils, ammunition, whatever you wanted. So it must have been a very, very welcome sight.
2: There was, there was nothing in that area. It, it must have been almost like a, a castle or some sort of like Shangri-La when these
3: people, you
2: know, rode up to it.
3: It would. And I think that's why William Bent, he was sort of the owner in residence. Charles Bent spent more of his time in Santa Fe. And in fact, he was eventually made territorial governor there and things were not always easy at that time. They went from a time of friendly trapping and trading to a lot of problems with the Native Americans. William Bent found that the trapping and trading was such that it was dropping off and that soldiers were using the fort more and more. So he finally said he'd sell it to them.
2: That was during the Mexican-American War in in 1846 when uh, U.S. soldiers were moving into the area and then you had, of course, the, the Native American population quite upset with things.
3: Well, they they were. And William had married uh, one of the Native American chief's daughter, Owl Woman. And they spent much of their time in Bent's Fort, but they also lived out in the Cheyenne camp in a teepee with other Native Americans. And so... He had a sort of a unique view of what was going on.
2: And that brings us to another person in your book, Chief Nywot. He also had connections to Bent's Fort. He was born around 1820, somewhere in Colorado, Kansas, or Nebraska, and eventually lived for a short time at Bent's Fort and learned English there. You begin his section with a scene.
3: Would you mind reading that for me? I will. This is one of the first introductions we have of Nywot. The long-haired man stood up in the wagon and whistled for his horse. Handing the wagon reins to his wife, he leapt from the wagon onto the back of his buffalo pony. Giving a wild shout and holding his rifle above his head, he swiftly ran toward the huge herd of buffalo. Fearlessly and with skill developed over years of experience, the rider picked out a fat cow from the buffalo herd. The man leaped to the ground, straddled the buffalo, and slit its throat. The members of the wagon train first watched in awe as the man began cutting long strips from the hide and hacking off pieces of the meat. Then they rushed to help. That night, everyone enjoyed a feast prepared by their Native American guide, Chief Left Hand.
2: And chief left hand is actually Niwot. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Phyllis Perry, author of the new book, Colorado Vanguards, Historic Trailblazers and Their Local Legacies.
3: How did you find that account? It was written in the memoirs of a man called Cook who was in a wagon train and at one point As Niwot realized that things were deteriorating for Native Americans, as he also realized that in spite of the many treaties that were made, none of them were honored in terms of giving the supplies and food that the Natives needed. So he went off in a small wagon with his wife and children to investigate farming techniques, because his friends among the military kept saying that if the Cheyenne and Arapaho would stay put and farm, as others did, instead of having to roam great distances and hunting buffalo, that uh, everyone would get along much better. And it was after going to take a look at farming techniques in, in the area and on his way back to his tribe, That left hand joined this wagon train, and he uh, offered to guide them since he knew that territory. And the leader of that wagon train kept notes of his journey, and these actually are his words as he described uh, the events of meeting and being with Chief Niwot. And there
2: are no photos of Chief Left Hand, of Chief Niwot. There are just accounts of him. It appears that Niwot's later life was full of broken treaties, uh, encroaching white settlers, and and seemingly constant migration, all of which eventually culminated uh, in the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864, where over the course of eight hours, U.S. troops killed around 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho people, composed mostly of women, children, and the elderly in southeastern Colorado. How did Chief Niwot navigate the changes he saw across Colorado at that time?
3: Well, it was difficult. Um, because younger men in the tribe were angry and ready for conflict. And Niwot was always a peacekeeper. Uh, he was one of those people, no matter how many times and how many treaties had been broken, he always seemed to have that positive aspect that next time they would be kept. Let's turn now to
2: to, to a woman who was known for... Uh public health crusading in Colorado in her day, that's uh, Florence Sabin. She was born in Central City in 1871, and and early in life, uh, she'd hoped to be something very different than than, than a public health crusader.
3: What did she want to be? Well, she was convinced that she was going to be a concert pianist. And she studied very hard, and apparently she was quite an accomplished musician. But she had small hands, and her instructors said that in terms of being a great pianist— That was just not in the cards for her. So she began looking and trying to explore other fields that she might go in. And she had a great-great-grandfather who was a doctor. Hmm. And she'd always been interested in science. And so she began thinking in terms of science and medicine as a possibility for her.
2: And she was eventually admitted to Johns Hopkins Medical School in Baltimore. Why was that significant? You mentioned a bit earlier about that, but why overall was that significant?
3: When Johns Hopkins was founded, it was founded by two women. And at that time, there were very few women who were doctors and researchers in medicine. There were certainly lots of nurses. And so uh, her ambition was to go to this new school, And then she finally began to zero in and concentrate on uh, learning more about how to prevent and cure tuberculosis.
2: And much later in life, Sabin returned to Colorado after having a considerable impact in the medical field. She was the first woman to hold a full professorship at Johns Hopkins, as well as the first woman elected to the National Academy of Sciences. But when it was time for her to retire, uh, she wasn't ready, uh, was she? So the state's governor at the time, John Vivian, appointed her as head of a public health committee here in Denver, and that was in 1944. Uh, it seemed the governor didn't expect much to come from this, quote, nice old lady running the committee, but he was really wrong, wasn't
3: he? He was. She had not wanted to retire, but it was mandatory at 67. And she took this committee assignment very seriously. I think the governor had just done it as a as a nice gesture. But she soon came up with a Sabin report and began working with people in the legislature to pass laws because she found things were not at all good in Colorado. The infant death mortality was very high. The tuberculosis rate, of which she was an expert, was very high. Uh, Milk was contaminated. Her measures were fundamental and far-reaching, and they were also effective within a matter of uh, a couple years. She had cut the rate of tuberculosis in Denver in half. And one of the interesting things about her that was new to me is that in the national capital, there is a room called the National Statuary Hall, and every state is allowed to choose two figures from the state's long history to be depicted in statues in this hall. First of all, I didn't know that there was such a hall. <laughs> but secondly, I also learned that one of the two who was featured from Colorado is Florence Sabin. It's a very beautiful statue of her.
2: You also write in your book that she had a love of baseball, and there's scenes where she would hold dinner parties until the baseball game was, was completed. Um, and, and you write, quote, A baseball fan all her life, Sabin died quietly at her home on october third nineteen fifty three at age eighty one during a seventh inning stretch of a televised baseball game between the Yankees and the Dodgers while researching the people in your book how do you how do you choose what nuggets like this to put in your book
3: Well, I'm afraid it's a reflection on the author <laughs> <laughs> i I really thought that that was neat, and I read descriptions of her dinner parties. And they were fun. They often had well-known figures, uh, but they also had students who came to her dinner parties. And it didn't matter who you were, when you came in, you were assigned a job. Uh-huh. You might set the table. Uh, you might be in charge of doing dishes. That was not a prize job because she was so determined that. No germs could exist in her kitchen, that the dishwashing process was very long and involved. But my favorite was that you might be chosen to sit on the floor in front of the oven and actually time the number of minutes that the steak was to be cooked. (laughs) So she was fun to read about.
2: So, did these Colorado figures? Do they kind of stick in your head? Are you maybe at the grocery store and and, and think of of a historical figure, or, or maybe you're you're getting your car washed? I mean, it seems you have so many of these people in in your head that you've written about.
3: Uh, sometimes you get strange connections with the people that you have read about, and in Chief Nywat, we have a beautiful, beautiful piece of sculpture. Uh, right in the center of Boulder near the courthouse. And whenever I'm near it, I always walk over and take a look at him. We don't, as you've pointed out, have any photographs of him, but this is a depiction of what he might have looked like from the descriptions of people like the wagon master who wrote about him. Uh, so yes, I, I do occasionally think back on these people
0: Boulder author Phyllis Perry's book is Colorado Vanguards, Historic Trailblazers and Their Local Legacies. She spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel earlier this year. See photos of the people they discussed at cprnews.org. Still to come, a man who thinks Colorado's original state song doesn't get enough love. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Quick, what's Colorado's state song? It's this one, right?
4: Rocky Mountain High, Colorado Rocky Mountain High, Colorado okay,
0: If you picked Rocky Mountain High, you are half right. In 2007, lawmakers made John Denver's ode to his adopted state the second state song. The first is called Where the Columbines Grow, It was embraced by the Colorado General Assembly 100 years ago.
4: Tis the land where the columbines grow Overlooking the plains far below While the cool summer breeze In the evergreen trees softly sing Where the columbines grow
0: Well, our guest thinks that that second song deserves to be better known. Rob Nadelson is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Independence Institute. That's the free market think tank in Denver. And he has written a paper about the song's history. Rob, welcome to the program.
5: It's great to be here, Ryan.
0: How did a constitutional lawyer like yourself get interested in where the Columbines grow?
5: Well, probably what I do mostly in my constitutional work is constitutional history. I'm known fairly well as a founding era historian, and I'm trained in history. And so uh, I became curious about this song and decided to apply my historical skills to uncovering more about it. I didn't go into it with the idea of thinking that it should be revived. It was just curiosity.
0: Well, let's dig into the history that you dug into earlier. The man who wrote it is Arthur J. Flynn. You brought me a sepia-toned photograph of him in a Fantastic mustache. My, that's a mustache. Tell us about this guy. Yeah, his last
5: name is actually Finn. That's F-Y-N-N. Pardon me. And, uh, uh, Martha, Arthur, I'm right. so
0: sorry. <laughs>
5: <laughs> At any rate, he, um, uh, he was born in upstate New York, quite impoverished. And uh, he worked as a farm boy, but he was determined to get an education. And through great struggles, he managed to go to a classical academy for what we would call high school. Went on to Tufts University. Um, with a degree in education, and then started looking for a job and landed a job in Central City, Colorado. I see. So he came out here and um, apparently liked Colorado because he stayed here all his life. He spent most of his years as a uh, uh, as a school administrator in Denver, but he was a bit of a polymath. He could do all kinds of different things, and music was one of them. Uh, he also became known nationally as a as an amateur. Archaeologist, in particular, particularly studying the uh, the life of the Pueblo Indians.
0: Fascinating, yes. Lots of talents. And how did Arthur Finn write where the columbines grow? How did he come to do that?
5: Well, he uh, studied violin from a very early age. He used to play at dances in New York State, and he kept it up. And I I, I gather from 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 what I read that in 1909 he was coming home with his wife uh, on an ocean liner from Europe. And he was, he was homesick. And so he wrote the melody at that point. Later on, he wrote the words. He was, in addition to all the other things he was, uh, an amateur poet. And so he put the words to the music. And the result is a product that's
0: really unusually sophisticated for a state song. I'll have to say that. Sophisticated. I mean, what's fascinating to me about it is, The Colorado Assembly adopts it in in 1915, right? And there's some grumbling because the original version never mentions the word Colorado. I mean, it certainly says the flowers that we have here, the Columbines, but it doesn't actually say the name Colorado. Yeah, I
5: I think there was some political stuff going on there. Uh, There was a... A favorite daughter of Colorado Springs, who had her own song that called Colorado that people wanted to substitute for it. There are a number of states that have songs that don't mention the name of the state including including florida and 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 Kansas. Uh, he eventually went on and uh six years later to write a verse that does mention the word Colorado, that has some of its own merits, but doesn't really fit with the rest of the song It's something like putting a rat's tail on a squirrel.
0: I see. Something of an appendage. Yeah. How did the uh, legislature then come to know about his song? I mean, it sounds like there were others that were vying to be the state song.
5: You know, I haven't been able to track that down other than to say that he was a very prominent citizen in Denver. I mean, he was a mainstay of the Historical Society, of the Chamber of Commerce, and um, of uh, a variety of other civic groups. And so it wouldn't be surprised if he had friend, friends in the legislature. It, in fact, two years later, when there was a move to decertify the song, he got a bunch of school kids and they came into the legislative chamber so that legislators could hear where the Columbines grow. Sung the, from the,
0: the mouths of babes. From the mouths of babes, okay. yeah.
5: And they were they were completely snowed. I mean, they they really liked the song, and I think one of the reasons for that is that it 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 does appeal on a number of different levels. So they tried to repeal it.
0: They tried to undo. Yeah,
5: there there have been several efforts. One in nineteen seventeen, and one in nineteen sixty nine, uh, a few others as well. One in the forties, I think it was. It's never gotten very far because once people hear it. Uh, in a a, a well-done performance it has a certain appeal.
0: Well, why don't we hear a little bit more of it, shall we? We played the chorus earlier, but um, this is the first verse, and I should point out that it's a version by a singer named Rick Pickren, who's recorded several albums of state songs.
4: Where the snowy peaks gleam in the moonlight Above the dark forests of pine. And the wild foaming waters dash onward Toward lands where the tropic stars shine Where the scream of the bold mountain eagle Responds to the notes of the dove Is the purple-robed west The land that is best the pioneer Land that I love,
0: Colorado's first official state song there, where the columbines grow, we're talking about it with constitutional law scholar Rick Nadelson, who has written a paper about this song, which was adopted officially a hundred years ago. Some lovely imagery in that first verse, wild foaming waters, the purple robed west, I like that um do you like the song? Yeah, I do. And and we don't have a lot of time to get
5: into the nuts and bolts, but that first verse kind of illustrates some things. First off, the song consists of an, of, of uh, a series of images. There are visual images, there are auditory images, sensory images, and there are a lot of contrasts. So you'll see uh, uh, a contrast between the eagle and the dove, for example. The eagle and the dove contrast is interesting because the name of the state song, Columbine, comes from the Latin word for dove. The scientific name Aquilegia is related to the Latin word for eagle, okay? And the columbine flower itself, the petals Uh, on the outside have been compared to a collection of doves, but they end in eagle
0: talons. That's how this connects to the flower. Yeah, and in
5: addition to that, in the the second verse, which uh, there's a reference to nymphs, you put eagles and doves together in nymphs, and you've got a classical reference to the great Roman poem The Metamorphoses by the poet Ovid. So there are all sorts of these little uh, sotilities all throughout the words the music itself is unusual um, in its use of accidentals. That is to say, key changes. Okay, and and, and um, again, much to revert the word to the word I used earlier, much more sophisticated than the average kind of rah-rah state song.
0: Yes, it's so different from many of the the rousing state songs like Texas or Texas or yes. On Wisconsin, right. I suppose.
5: Now, here's one other one other point that's kind of interesting. Yeah, those of you familiar with John Denver's song know he's got a uh, an environmental lament in it uh he can't understand why they tear the mountains down to bring in a couple more the second the second verse of this song actually includes an, an environmental lament as well it portrays a potential future in which nature has been denuded okay hmm. but fortunately the columbine blooms on
0: do you find that prescient
5: do i find it prescient yeah well, I, I don't know if it's prescient. Um, let's just say that uh, he obviously had some of the same love for the environment that most Coloradans have.
0: Yeah. It's a reflection of who he was, Arthur Finn, the writer of Where the Columbines Grow. Why don't we do just a little bit of comparing and contrasting to the second state song that was adopted sure. you know, much later, Rocky Mountain High. Well, first of all, what, what did you think when it was adopted? As a second state song, are we the only state with a second state song? Um, I know, you know Ohio. We, there are
5: states with more than one. Uh, yeah. They'll call one the state song, and the other the state anthem or the state march.
0: Ohio has a state rock song. Yeah, Hang um, On Sloopy, but that's not its official <laughs> state song.
5: And and I should I should hasten to say here that that there is a difference in the standing of the two. Okay, um, where the columbines grow is state song by the re, by reason of state law, and there's actually a law which says that it is supposed to be used on all appropriate occasions. So if there's an inauguration, for example, they're supposed to play or to sing the state song.
0: And that is not true of Rocky Mountain High. That's not true of Rocky
5: Mountain High. Rocky Mountain High was adopted by joint resolution, and so it does not have the force of law. To a former law professor like me, I suppose (laughs) those kinds of distinctions are important. I, I find I find where the Columbines grow much more subtle. I, I like uh, Rocky Mountain High. I, I like it very much. But I find where the Columbines grow somewhat more subtle and certainly more singable to those with average voices.
0: And so on the centennial of the state's uh, adoption, uh, the song's adoption, that is, uh, where the Columbines grow, do you hope that it its profile is raised? Do you hope that it's played at more functions? I mean, do you think there's a kind of dearth of its performance?
5: Um I think the quick answer to that is yes. Um, I didn't go into this study thinking that, but I certainly became converted to it. I think Coloradans have a gem here which uh, has kind of accumulated dust over the year over the years, and it needs to be unearthed. or
0: undust it again, uh, because I think it, I, I think the song has a lot to offer. And would you challenge then, I don't know, musicians listening to get creative with it? I mean, could you hear it in different styles? You know, there's a punk rock version on the web. I don't know if I
5: would encourage people to get that creative with it. <laughs> I, I think, you know, one of the things that you learn as a his, as a historian is you have to take each era on its own terms, and you can't you can't rip something out of its era, its era, and you can't take a song and pretend it's what it's not. So, sure, put your put your thumbprint on it, but don't press too hard.
0: Is there more you'd like to learn about the song?
5: I guess uh, there's a, there's information I'd like to know which I don't uh, think I'll ever. Uncover, Finn. For example, Finn actually published two other songs, and this is distinctly superior to the other two. One was published earlier; one was published later. And I, I sometimes wonder if there were influences or assistance that he might have gotten that made this song uh, what it what it is.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And I hate to say this on your behalf, but we have the punk rock version of "Where the Columbines Uh-oh. Grow." <laughs> So we're going to listen to that. Rob Nadelson is Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the Independence Institute. His paper about where the Columbines grow is called Reclaiming the Centennial State's Centennial Song. And here's that version by the rock band Pinhead Circus. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Finally today in our Colorado History Special, what are the state's most important artifacts? Each year, Coloradans have the chance to vote. Dana Echohawk joined me last year to tell me about some of 2015's winners. She is with Colorado Collections Connection. Dana, welcome back to the program.
6: Thank you, Ryan.
0: So one of the items on the list uh, is a cauldron,
6: right.
0: like for cooking. Yes. Cooking what?
6: This is a large cast-iron cauldron that was used uh, for the very first tofu that the White Wave Company made in Boulder, Colorado— And, you know, today tofu is kind of common in stores, grocery stores. But back in the 70s, it was almost a radical food idea uh, to provide nutrition and protein as a food.
0: A soybean-based product called tofu would have been foreign to many when this cauldron was in use. It would. All right. (laughs) And you mentioned that it was an early tool for the company that became White Wave. Yes. Which is now huge in alternative foods. It is.
6: Uh, Steve Demos started, founded the company, and... um, started using the cauldron and trying different recipes and this and that. This is now at the Boulder History Museum, and they are the ones that nominated it.
0: All right. There's a photo of this if you link uh, at cprnews.org. It's giant. There must have been a lot of tofu in that first cauldron.
6: Yeah, it's very large. Another thing that I want to mention about the cauldron is it was in 1970. This is the first year that we've had artifacts nominated from... uh, the latter part of the 20th century. Usually, artifacts are nominated from the 1800s or the early 1900s. All
0: right. So this is something of a modern or contemporary uh,
6: contemporary artifact
0: contender. Yes,
6: but still historic.
0: Our previous winners from past years include the Journal of the Pioneering Mountain Climber, Albert Ellingwood, uh, the Will from frontiersman Kit Carson. Uh What are the criteria for making the list of what you call the state's most significant artifacts?
6: We call for nominations in summer from our state's historical uh, institutions that care and preserve artifacts around the state. And the only criteria is that they are not buildings. They can be documents, photographs diaries, wills. They can be 3D items. Uh, Anything that that institution feels is significant goes into the nomination.
0: But not buildings, uh, I suppose, because there are other ways of preserving those.
6: Well, there is another organization in the state that works mainly with uh, historic preservations of structures. So we decided to focus uh, solely on collections.
0: On collections, including another winner this year, shrapnel from an airplane crash near Denver in 1955. Uh, This was not an accidental crash. Tell us about the shrapnel and and the flight.
6: Again, this is a later mid-century nomination, but in 1955, uh, United Airlines number 621 took off from Stapleton Airport, and 11 minutes after it, took into the air. It exploded, killing all 44 people aboard and spreading debris all over Longmont farmlands. Um, It was a bomb that had been planted in the baggage uh, compartment, and this led to a call for baggage uh, scanning, which we have today. So it was significant uh, for that reason for um, implementing new legislation for
0: yeah, the, the Flight 629 was brought down by a son, I think, who planted a bomb in his mother's suitcase. There's a link to our conversation about that particular story at cprnews.org. And uh, this comes um, from the Den- Denver Police Museum in their Denver collection. Denver Police
6: Museum. And the son that you're talking about was a Mr. Graham. His trial, I might mention, was also the first televised criminal trial, kind of like the OJ trial.
0: Really? Yes. That I did not know. And you, too, can see this piece of historic shrapnel and the story it tells at cprnews.org. Uh, another winner th- this year that interested me is a flyer from 1983, which invites wheelchair users to protest. Yes. Tell us about this.
6: <laughs> Denver Public Library nominated this uh, protest flyer, and it was from the American Disabled for Accessible Public Transit And they invited, like you said, the wheelchair people from all over the U.S. to protest for accessible uh, transportation on public buses. And their chant was, we will ride. And that is a chant that went out across the U.S. So starting right here in Colorado, uh, we now have... Uh, lifts on buses and ramps in all public places. But it started in Colorado.
0: We should say that uh, this year is the 25th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So this is something of a precursor, I suppose, to that. Yes, it was. And this flyer says, I'm looking at it right now, ADAPT, that's the name of the organization, cordially invites you to an uproar. (laughs) And there is an image of a bus being flushed down a toilet. It gives you a sense for how frustrated they were with the lack of accessibility at that time.
6: And there was. Today, they have much more accessibility to ride public transportation. Also on the list,
0: the first edition of the first newspaper published in southern Colorado. It was called the Colorado Chieftain, Uh not the Pueblo Chieftain, as uh, the name is today. The issue is June 1st, 1868. Mm -hmm. It's taped up. But I'm surprised that it's in as decent shape as it is.
6: It is. And newspapers are fun. They give a lot of history and the the way people thought and what justice was back in those days versus what it is today.
0: Uh, How do you preserve? I'm thinking of the newsprint and newspaper that I have that's like two weeks old and deteriorating. How do you preserve something like that from 1868?
6: This one was preserved by the newspaper office itself. It was bound, and for 145 years it sat in their archives before they decided to give it to the uh, Pueblo City and County Library District.
0: What are some of the stories in this first issue?
6: Well, one of the uh, right on the main uh, page is the death of Kit Carson, the famous frontiersman. And uh, it simply states that General Kit Carson is no more. Is no more. No more. And then it goes on to describe his life in more detail. All right.
0: It's succinct, but it certainly gets to the point. Yeah. You do this every year, this, this vote, this election, if you will, of uh, historic artifacts. Why?
6: Well, Colorado Collections Connections is based at Auraria Library on, at the University of Colorado, Denver. And we do this to build awareness of the artifacts that are being cared for and preserved by our state's institutions. Um and we open the voting to all of the public so that people know the collective history that these artifacts represent.
0: And the gems, really, that are in archives all over the state in, in communities big and small.
6: They are. There's large uh, museums like History Colorado, but there's also very small museums and organizations like Gold Hill a Museum, which is a little tiny historic town up above Boulder.
0: Dana Echohawk of Colorado Collections Connection. Also making the 2015 list, a tattered U.S. flag carried during the Civil War, and papers from the first single female homesteader in Estes Park, who was also a successful businesswoman. And our history special is now history. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.